Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's 10 Things with Clay Jenkinson and Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, and this week it's about John Jay. A listener urged us to do 10 things about John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, who was the governor of the state of New York, and he went to England in 1794 and completed something called the Jay Treaty, one of the most controversial treaties in the history of the early republic. However, John Jay is kind of neglected by history, not really well known amongst the founding fathers, but the two of you agree that that's not the position he should hold. He deserves better in American memory. He was a man of extraordinary capacity and temperament, not a brilliant pro stylist, but one of the most important men of substance in the early national period. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good to see you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. I trust you're well, sir, and I... I wanted to talk to you this week about a contemporary of yours, Mr. John Jay. He was a Federalist and a close ally of Washington and Hamilton, which was opposite your views. And however, the two of you were close, it is said, as political allies. I had a lot of respect for John Jay. He was the Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles of Confederation when I was serving as an American minister in France. And we had a correspondence about America's diplomatic position with respect to France and with England, and and I was carrying with me a model treaty of uh, free trade. And because of that, Jay and I spent a, a fair amount of time in correspondence. He may have saved my presidency and may have saved the Republic in 1800 because in New York, Hamilton tried to change the rules after the fact when it appeared that I would win that state's electors rather than John Adams. And therefore, Um, Governor Jay refused to accept Adams' plan to undermine the electoral process and turn the election for the Federalists. And so that is a very important uh, gift to the peaceful transfer of power and to the respectability of our electoral system. Where Jay and I disagreed was about the American West. He did not have a particular interest in the West, and in fact, he was willing to enter into a treaty with the Spanish which would have locked up the Mississippi River for 30 years. This was in 1785, and Westerners never really forgave him for that. I I think it's very significant, the first part of your answer, sir, what he did in New York, uh, because the two of you differed, and it would have helped his own goals or his own beliefs had you been defeated. He favored a strong central government, sir. You did not. I did not. I'm a Virginian first, and I believe that we should have a confederation of sovereign nation states like Virginia and New York and New Jersey. But I trusted Jay as a constitutionalist, as a man of due process, as a man who always tried to do the thing that was virtuous, even if it was politically unpopular. There isn't really a, a whiff of partisanship in Jay's life, that he was a straightforward Uh, servant leader of his time. And although we might have disagreed about our visions of this country, uh, that's less important than the idea we will have peaceful transfers of power. John Jay's record on slavery, I'm sorry to say somewhat like yours, was was a blot on his reputation. 
Well, yes, but he was more successful than I was, maybe because he was in New York, but he persevered in introducing legislation to end slavery in New York and finally was successful at that. I believe he owned as many as 17 slaves. Uh, that is a minor number compared to my several hundred. But yes, uh, there is a contradiction between his love of liberty and the fact that he was able not only to own enslaved people, but to track them down uh, and have them returned when they escaped. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, thinking of, of Mr. J, uh, where should Americans put his importance in America's history? We need to remember that people who are not dramatic or entertaining or compelling uh, often are amongst the, the finest public servants that we have. And the fact that Jay, in some regards, is less well-known does not discredit his extraordinary achievements as the first Chief Justice, as one of the writers of the New York Constitution in 1777, as an American diplomat who performed a number of important tasks in Europe, and a man who in 1800 refused to succumb to a planned coup d'etat by none other than Hamilton. So we can agree then, Mr. Jefferson, that while John Jay was both a friend and an adversary to you, his contributions to the founding of this nation deserve respect from all citizens. John Jay treated me with great respect when I was in Europe trying to uphold the interests of the United States in a war-torn world, a world of revolution, and I have nothing but respect for his capacity to maneuver his way thoughtfully through the, the, the sometimes chaotic world of the 1790s. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And this week, we are so very pleased to welcome back Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky for another 10 Things episode. And this week, it's about John Jay. I think it's fair to say that John Jay has been a bit historically neglected. So let's start there. Let me begin. 1745 to 1829, so born two years after Thomas Jefferson and lived three years after Jefferson's death on July 4th, 1826. So they're exact contemporaries. Uh, John Jay, I think, is one of the most neglected and undervalued of the founding fathers, partly because he held a lot of different jobs, but never the supreme one of being president of the United States. And there's a reason for that, which we will go into as the program unfolds. But before I turn it to Lindsay, I should say that this program came about by suggestion, and we take suggestions about our 10 Things program. In fact, we're going to do one on Theodore Roosevelt, which takes us a little way out of Jefferson's time. But this was suggested in Salinas, California, by John McPherson, who is the, um, the president of the board, which oversees the John Steinbeck Interpretive Center there. And I was there leading a cultural tour, and he came up and said, 
hey, love that thing you do with with that really snarky person, whoever she is. But uh, <laughs> he said, with Lindsay Cherminsky, she's fantastic. But he said, will you do one on John Jay? And so I said, of course. So, Lindsay, do you agree he's one of the most underrated of the Founding Fathers? I completely agree. I think he deserves far more attention. I think he is in some ways actually a figure that modern viewers would find more understandable or relatable than some of the other founding generation. He, I know we're, I'm sort of jumping ahead here, but he had a very warm and loving relationship with his wife. He had a long and valuable relationship with his children. He cared for his family. He was a religious and moral man. I think he had pretty good values. He was brilliant. He was well-educated. So there are a lot of things about him that are incredibly appealing. For the purpose of history, the reason I think we should remember him is that all of his contemporaries, the ones that we do remember, like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, well, maybe not Thomas Jefferson, but George Washington and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, they all believed he was fantastic and they believed his opinions mattered and that they wanted his advice and his input. And if they thought that, then we should probably take them at their word. Let me say the reason why Jefferson found trouble with John Jay is principally because Jay was not a strong advocate of the American West, the Trans-Appalachian region. And for Jefferson, whose base really was the South and the growing West, to be at odds with the, the demands of, of Western people, the pioneers in Kentucky and Tennessee and Ohio, was anathema. And so Jefferson was really upset when he perceived that Jay was essentially arguing on behalf of the northern states and the northeast particularly. So Jefferson took it very personally that Jay wasn't as strong a western visionary uh, as some of the others of the founders. Let me just say before you, you start us in, David, that Jay New York is named after John Jay, as is Jay Vermont, Jay County, Indiana, and New York's College of Police Science is named the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at Columbia, where he was an early graduate of King's College. Uh, there's a residence hall named for him. And when Columbia named its 250 greatest alumni, they placed him first on the list. I'm I like sure it. Hamilton is really, really upset, I think, but still. <laughs> I approve of their rankings. We all agree, I think, that John Jay is somewhat of a neglected founding father. One of the reasons for that may be that he, like a lot of the founders, destroyed a great deal of his personal correspondence. There are certainly fewer and they're less organized than what well, previously had been less organized. There is a John Jay editorial project, which is doing hero's work to try and bring this material to light and make it more accessible to researchers and historians. A lot of his correspondence is available in uh, the paper collections of other people. So, for example, earlier this week, I was going through Timothy Pickering's papers and uh, John Jay and Timothy Pickering regularly exchange letters. And as a side note, if you have the opportunity to look at John Jay's letters, they are a historian's dream because they are so beautiful and so clear and his handwriting is so lovely and it makes our jobs so much easier when you can read what they're saying. So I do think that in some ways, his his reputation has been slightly harmed by just less of the material record that is available. But let's let's talk also about his capacity as a writer. 
when you think of the, the quotable founding fathers, who's the most quotable of all the founding fathers? Bing, 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 bing. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, George Washington. They are all more memorable prose stylists than John Jay. Name one John Jay quotation that deserves to be remembered. There isn't one. And I think it has to be said that history belongs to the great writers in some respects. And Jay was a good prose stylist, very correct, but he doesn't have a single magnificent quotation. No, I, I don't disagree. I think that the best way to think about his brain and the writing that he produced was he had what we would consider today to be judicial temperament. He was a brilliant thinker. He was a very rational thinker. He understood the complexities of diplomacy and the law, but he wasn't necessarily a political theorist or a poet or a writer, as you said. And so, so much of his brilliance is actually seen in substance, but you're right. It doesn't necessarily, you know, go as well on a sticker. Well, let's get to the 10 points that the two of you sent me in. I'll present them in the, in the order that you sent them in, which begins with number one, Jay's complicated relationship with slavery, and it really is complicated. Well, I should start by saying there's a fantastic new book that I haven't finished yet, but I'm partway through called Liberty's Chain by David Gelman, and it looks at the entire history of slavery, abolition, and the entire Jay family. So it starts with Jay's, John Jay's ancestors, and it goes into the his son's generation and his grandson's generation. And what I love about that is it presents slavery and abolition as a family project and a family lineage that they had to grapple with. But what the story does reveal is despite being a fairly ardent abolitionist in his rhetoric and in some of his actions, he was supportive of education for formerly enslaved individuals. He was supportive of gradual emancipation. He signed the bills in New York that created for emancipation. He owned people. He bought people. It wasn't like he just inherited individuals from his family and then at some point emancipated them. He actually bought new individuals. He pursued those that attempted to run away and had a very patriarchal white ownership perspective in that he couldn't understand why they might want to run away. So there are both things that should be lauded and celebrated, but also real limitations. Let me make the case for him for just a moment. He repeatedly introduced emancipation legislation in New York. You know, Jefferson started off by doing something similar in Virginia and soon got his fingers burned and turned away and began to become more evasive about it for the rest of his long and distinguished life. Jay persisted and, and actually got the bill passed finally uh, that uh, put slavery on the road to quick extinction in the state of New York. Easier in New York, it has to be said, than Virginia or South Carolina. But still, that's a heroic achievement, and he could easily have given up after doing the right rhetorical thing. He also wrote this. This may be his most memorable single sentence. That It's very Jeffersonian, except without the hypocrisy or with less hypocrisy. <laughs> I made you laugh. <laughs> I really needed that today. Thank you. Oh, good. That men should pray and fight for their own freedom and yet keep others in slavery is certainly acting a very inconsistent as well as an unjust and perhaps impious part. That's strong. And he was part of, of, of abolition institutions. 
um, you know, voluntary associations of, of, of like-minded people. So, you know, the fact that he owns slaves and that he's somewhat complacent about his personal ownership of slaves is a serious blot on his reputation. But you can see that, that as you said before, he's a measured man. And I think he realized the fundamental truth that slavery is incompatible with a republic. And therefore, it had to go. And he led the charge in his own state of New York and did it successfully. You know, we wish that he would have distanced himself from his ownership of enslaved people or, or been more willing to talk about that contradiction. But nevertheless, um, I think he has to finally appear on the brighter side of this long, agonizing question. Yeah, before we say goodbye to that part of the discussion, I think it, it, it's 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 notable to recognize that it, it was a Jay family tradition. Both his father and his grandfather invested in uh, slave ships as part of the New York slavery records. And Jay himself, it appears, would have owned in some way or been involved in some way with about 17 slaves during his lifetime. So he grew up with it, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Well, I think the, what, what Clay was saying about the, the measured nature of his approach to so many things is revealed in a great deal by the way New York society was at the time. So to be sure, there were fewer enslaved individuals in New York than there were in Virginia, but New York was the most heavily populated with enslaved individuals of the northern states, especially in around New York City, where there was a lot of trade connections with the Caribbean and with the South, and it was a measure of status, it was a measure of uh, prestige, and it was a regular part of commerce. Now, of course, this is not a justification, but it is important to observe all of the ways in which slavery was folded into society, whether it be when he was at King's College, whether it be the family that he married into, as well as his own personal family. And indeed, one of the challenges that he faced when he was abroad on one of his many diplomatic trips was his brother was at home trying to deal with the family, and they had several enslaved individuals who were old and infirmed and were not capable of working anymore. And Jay was pretty insistent that they not be dismissed or sold, recognizing that that was not really fair. And this is, you know, we you can see in his letters that he's grappling with how do you treat people who you don't really think of as equals, but you're also not willing to just throw away, which is why his gradual emancipation approach fits with that mentality and fits with the idea that yes, New York society is moving in this direction, but it takes time to sort of unfold. And that's, I think, how he came to that position. We need to take a short break. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a 10 Things discussion about John Jay with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our returning special guest, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. And I'm going to move to the second point, which is Jay's role as Chief Justice in Washington's administration. Let me just say he was the first Chief Justice, so that is an important role because the Constitution was very general about this. Uh, Article 3 is not very well defined in the Constitution. And so once Congress began to meet under the new Constitution, it soon passed the Judiciary Act of 1789, which set the basic protocols of our U.S. court system. But a lot was going to depend upon the first occupants. And Lindsay, you're the, the nation's leading expert on this because Washington's cabinet was another one of those norms that was established by the first person who occupied the role. And they have enormous upstream power to create traditions that will last for generations, maybe for millennia. And so Jay's status as the first chief justice helped to create a kind of a Supreme Court ethos that has been very successful. Yeah, I completely agree. And for if he should be remembered for anything, I mean, there's so many things he could be remembered for, and we will touch on some of the other ones, but this one surely should cement him in the founding Hall of Fame because he there's some evidence to suggest that Washington actually asked him, do you want to be the new Secretary of State or do you want to be Chief Justice? And he selected Chief Justice. He had been the acting Secretary of Foreign Affairs prior, so he really kind of had his choice and he wanted that position. And he really put his stamp on what the court ended up becoming. At the time, the court was not as prestigious as it is today. You had to do what was called circuit riding. So you had to go to different parts of the country and it was a terribly uncomfortable experience. Uh, it was very dirty. The lodging was terrible. Traveling was very uh, unpleasant. So he, he didn't particularly like it and he didn't stay on the court all that long. He was not alone in that until John Marshall came onto the court. Most justices really only served from three to eight years, maybe. But he continued to advise Washington and Hamilton while he was the chief justice, and he worked with the court to try and establish political norms, to establish norms of conduct. And uh, th that's an essential, it's an essential quality that is really hard to quantify because that firstness is so hard. Measuredness. I have two things to say to that, Lindsay. Number one, what a surprise you attack circuit riding. Jefferson believes circuit riding is very important because it takes... That's because he didn't have to do it. ...takes these self-important pompous men out of the national capital and puts them into the country, makes them go out and meet actual people and see what the country actually is like. I know the Federalists couldn't stand it because they didn't like the people, but Jefferson reinstated circuit riding uh, in the uh, Judiciary Act of 1802 after the Federalists had tried to stop it. Number two, on what you say, um, agreed, but think if Washington had persuaded Jay to be the first Secretary of State, how much trouble he could have saved for a whole lot of people. If Jefferson had <laughs> never been in that cabinet, Washington's administration would have been a much happier and more satisfying one. Hamilton wouldn't have had to go berserk over Jefferson. Jefferson wouldn't have become the outspoken, uh, sort of not even loyal opposition, the, the, the founder of a, of a rival newspaper and eventually a new party. Imagine how, how different our history would have been if Jay had accepted that appointment. 
Okay, so I'm going to say something nice about Jefferson. Oh, good. You should not... Uh, don't take it for count, granted. Don't count on it being a regular curse yeah, here. Yeah, great. I actually think that Washington's foreign policy, at least up through the end of 1793, benefited greatly from having the two different opinions in his cabinet. I think having a more pro-French neutrality position, which Jefferson... Some people think that Jefferson was was not in favor of neutrality. Not so. He understood a war was not possible, but he wanted a more pro-French neutrality. Balancing the more British neutrality that Hamilton espoused was really, really important. And while I think Jay was very level-headed, and I don't think he was nearly as biased as Hamilton was about these things, I don't know that he would have been as neutral. And so I do think Washington benefited from that. Jay certainly would have been less duplicitous, so my niceness does not, you know, go uh, indefinitely. But uh, I am I am glad that he was the first chief justice. It was it was a good position for him to be in. Although interestingly, given the opportunity to go back to it, he chose to be governor of New York instead. So it shows sort of what he thought of the position after a few years. Exactly. So one last thing about this, and that is that. Um... John Jay had already had considerable experience in foreign policy because he was the foreign policy secretary under the Articles of Confederation. And so he knew a lot about this, and he had been sent to Europe a number of times in the course of his life, where whether you agree with his treaties or not, he was an extraordinarily fine-tempered and loyal diplomat for the United States. Well, that's good. Let's move into the next point, which is treaties. The Treaty of Paris and the Jay Treaty very different items, very different reactions. So here's really, I think, where Jay excels, because as you said, he was an incredibly loyal diplomat and he had a very good sense of the United States position in the world. I think he perhaps had the most realistic sense of American influence. Uh, Some of the other American diplomats really thought the United States was way more important than it was. And Jay had a real sense that that was not necessarily the case. So He was essential in the Treaty of Paris negotiations. We talked about this a little bit in one of our previous episodes when we talked about how John Adams gave him a lot of credit for the Treaty of Paris negotiations. And Jay was insistent that the negotiations had to start with British observance of American independence. And he was insistent that the United States sign a treaty without the participation of France, which were both, in retrospect, really, really important clauses. So he played a huge role in that treaty. And then the Jay Treaty, which was he negotiated in 1794, it was signed and ratified in 1795, got a very bad rap in certain portions of the nation. I maintain that it was absolutely the best deal that could have been had at the time because the United States had literally no influence. They He had no levers to pull or cards to play. And the fact that he received any concessions from the British was nothing short of a testament to his good relationship with the British ministers. That's, of course, the new orthodoxy for the past 15 or 20 years. Uh, The position you take is that the Jay Treaty, however unpopular it was in some parts of the country, was actually the best deal we were possibly going to get, and that he actually got more in some sense than we could have expected since we had no leverage with uh, respect to Great Britain. But this sort of raises the issue of the realists versus the idealists in American history. Jefferson and Wilson belong to the idealists. Uh, Jay and uh, Hamilton, he's a dark uh, realist. Uh, Jay and Hamilton and and Theodore Roosevelt and others are the realists. 
Um, and so Jefferson believed that we had a, a, what I might even call a sentimental uh, obligation to France, that they had sided with us when we had no friends in the world. They had helped us to win the War of Revolution. We had signed that perpetual treaty of amity and friendship with them. Now the French Revolution was coming and Europe was becoming very disrupted and uh, the president sends John Jay of the Supreme Court to England to try to hammer out our very difficult um, economic and trade relations with Britain and to settle some issues that had not been settled after the Treaty of Paris. Jay comes back with a treaty that really sticks in the craw of the idealists, because why are we cozying up to Great Britain? We shouldn't even really be giving them any respect whatsoever. They're, they're the tyrannical power that was occupying us with Hessian troops and betraying the people of France who have been our friends. And, you know, maybe we do more economic trade with Britain. Maybe that's more important in terms of our economy. But aren't our hearts supposed to be a central part of the way we do this? We, don't we have some eternal gratitude that we must show to France, and by the way, Lindsay, you know, when Jay said we're, we're not going to bring France into the, the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War, that violated the very treaty we had had with France, that we would make no separate peace. If it was the right thing to do for the United States. Do you think the idealists are important in American diplomacy or that they really are kind of a nuisance? I think that they make for terrible diplomats. Uh, James Monroe was an idealist and he was a terrible diplomat. I think that they are an important part of American politics to always push for trying to get closer to the more perfect union. So I think that as long as we don't think that their policies are necessarily always the best policies for the United States in terms of a realist economic perspective, they play a really important role. They just probably shouldn't be doing the negotiations. David, before you move on, let me just say this cost, this probably cost John Jay the presidency. Um, yeah. He was so toxic after the Jay Treaty that he was burned in effigy all over the country. Um, he was denounced. The pamphlet wars went on at endless length to denounce him. Uh, and so he lost his chance to be uh, a crossover figure that could win enough electoral votes in both the North and the South and the West to be president. And whether he actually wanted to be president is an interesting question. But it wasn't in the cards after the Jay Treaty. Interesting. Let's move on to the next point, which I think we could probably spend the entire discussion on, and that's the Federalist Papers. Easy answer for me. He wrote five of them. There were 85 of them. He wrote five early on and then dropped out of the project. And so the glory goes really to Hamilton, except that Madison wrote two or three of the very finest essays ever written about American life. But Hamilton was the was the great water carrier in the Federalist Papers, Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think Jay got pretty sick that summer, if I remember correctly, and he had planned to write more and had to pull out. I do think it's important to acknowledge, and the, Hamilton the musical sometimes makes a joke about this as well, and in this I agree with Aaron Burr, that just because Hamilton wrote so many words doesn't actually mean that all of those words were needed. <laughs> sometimes he could have really benefited from an editor. Um, but nonetheless, he did do uh, a lion's share of the work and carried the water, as you said. And so Jay's role in this is a little bit forgotten. I have read some very interesting research that there were actually some other authors of a few of them as well that people don't know about. So maybe we should do a 10 things on the Federalist Papers. And I will 
bring out that research and we can dig into it. And here's what's so interesting about this for me. They wrote this as Publius. They wrote this as an anonymous. A lot of people heard, had a sense of who was involved. And Jefferson's in Paris. And Madison sends him uh, the collected Federalist and pretends that it's just this interesting book that somehow burbled up. And Jefferson knew that Madison was one of the principal authors. And so he writes back this letter, very Jeffersonian letter, saying, not, not saying, I know you were the author. He's saying, the person who wrote this uh, has created one of the most, you know, one of those Jefferson letters of giant praise. And they both know that each one knows that Madison is one of the principal authors, but it's in sort of the Jane, uh, the Jane Austen world of, of, the, of Jefferson's life that they would never really say that to each other. So there's an interesting parallel that occurs with George Washington, who actually doesn't know initially who the authors are. And he's receiving copies and he's asking Hamilton and Jay to send him more copies because he wants to send them on to editors. And at that moment, he doesn't actually know who's writing them. And then, of course, learns later. So that is uh, that's always a really fun moment in, in that writing when you can see Washington being like, yes, this is exactly what people should be saying. And then realizes, oh, of course, I agree with them. These are my allies. You know, you, you were talking about Jefferson, Clay, and I promised to, to get back to that. One of your points was this great letter that um, from France uh, that Jefferson wrote to Jay. But there was some statement that Lindsay made prior to the beginning of the taping of the show that, that you asked me to, to remind you about. So I'm doing that. And so, you know, we have a lot of fun with this. I know Lindsay really loves Jefferson, and she's only doing this to be the devil's advocate. And, I, and of course, I think Hamilton is the bee's knees. And so, you know, we're just sort of playing this game. But I did think I heard you say some very... Uh, supportive things about Jefferson, and, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but I think it's it's the same statement in, in different words, that of all the figures of this era, from 1774 to 1830, the one who rides this whole thing like a surfer, no matter what happens, and always winds up coming out pretty well, the master political strategist of the era is Thomas Jefferson. Washington was already in some trouble in his second term because of the rise of partisan spirit, and he was tired. Adams is a single-term president, can't possibly really be reelected. Burr flames out. Hamilton flames out. Madison and Moreau are probably not president of the United States if it's not for Thomas Jefferson. Here's Jefferson just rolling along through the first 30 years of, a, of our constitutional history, and although he has some setbacks, he really nails it. So that's not quite what I said. Um, <laughs> so what did what did you say? Well, what happened was on so April thirteenth is Thomas Jefferson's birthday, and so on that day I posted a thing online that said on this day in seventeen forty three Thomas Jefferson was born. From seventeen seventy five to eighteen twenty six he shaped and defined the world perhaps more than any other person alive. Noted. I just said that. Uh, uh, uh. Notice I did not say anything about a political strategist. Then I go on to say, I understand and defend his importance and significance. He was also cruel, manipulative, and duplicitous, and I often find him very annoying. Apparently, some listeners did not like this statement and tagged Clay as though my annoyance with Jefferson was going to be a surprise, which I found highly amusing. So anyway, 
This tweet had, uh, people had a lot of feelings about it, as they do about Thomas Jefferson. I think it's kind of amusing that you're, let's put it this way, in the first quarter of your life, and you can write a sentence saying, I defend Mr. Jefferson's greatness. Well, I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> well, my, my, I think my point is that you can, and I, 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 I like to believe that humans are capable of holding two complex thoughts in their brains at the same time. So I can both say that I think that he is a incredibly important historical figure and worthy of study and understanding and memory, and also that he's not personally my particular favorite. And that doesn't mean that someone shouldn't read about him or that he, you know, should be erased from history books. I just sometimes find him annoying. I think we should do a program on the 10 most annoying founders. <laughs> Works for me. Who, who for you is the most annoying founder? Well, we kind of already talked about James Monroe because he's so self-righteous and boring. Um, so he probably is the top of my list, but Jefferson's going to be up there. That's good. So we'll 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 plan that one for another time. The ten most annoying moments, let's say, or the ten most annoying <laughs> Perfect. incidents. Perfect. Clay, tell us about this letter that you you referred to in your notes. It's, it's so quintessentially Jefferson, and I I can already see uh, Lindsay rolling her eyes, but I'm still going to read a couple of passages from it. It's from Paris, August twenty third, seventeen eighty five. So Jay is the Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles, and Jefferson is the effectively the ambassador to France. And he says, you know, well, there are going to be problems at sea because we are becoming a trading nation. And when you're at sea, you're going to have incidents and they're going to be impressments and you're going to have tariff issues and port problems. And it's going to lead to skirmishes and maybe to war. And so I think we're going to need a Navy. So Jefferson, this early, is, is pushing for a United States Navy once we pay off the national debt. But he starts with kind of his, his one of his lovely agrarian things and says, we have lands enough to employ an infinite number of people. Cultivators of the, of the earth are the most valuable citizens. They're the most vigorous, the most independent, the most virtuous, and they are tied to their country and wedded to its liberty and interests by the most lasting bonds. Clay, you read that entire passage and I watched Lindsay and I don't think her eyes rolled once. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give her a minute and take a short break. And when we come back, I want to hear the rest of this letter. Is that right? Can we do it that way? Well, I'm getting to it. Very good, sir. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back to this conversation about John Jay with Clay Jenkinson and our special guest, Lindsay Chervinsky. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, 10 things about John Jay with Dr. Lindsay Travinsky and the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And Clay, I interrupted your fine reading of this letter from Jefferson to Jay. Would you like to return to it? So I had been saying that that Jefferson is offering one of his typical agrarian payons, you know, this this country of, of, of virtuous family farmers working in their fields by day and reading Homer in the original Greek, a very typical sort of Jefferson notion, which is not really born in facts and not in, in the realities, not even the agricultural realities of the United States of his time. But then he says, you know, if we have to choose a, a mixed economy, I'd rather us go to sea as traders than have us manufacture at home. And he says this, I consider the class of artificers as the panders of vice and the instruments by which the liberties of a country are generally overturned. So that's his anti-Hamilton kind of notion here that he doesn't know Hamilton yet, but that he doesn't want us to be a manufacturing nation. He wants us to be an agrarian nation and we'll take our commodities, indigo and wheat and tobacco and molasses and, and, and naval stores and so on and take those raw commodities to Europe. Let them have the factories and the the engines of artifice and this will keep us virtuous and will protect us from the the kind of growing social and urban and industrial problems of the old world this is such a this is so idealistic as to be essentially nonsense jefferson is a plantation owner with tens of thousands of acres and hundreds of enslaved people He's growing tobacco for the international market. You can't eat tobacco. You can't drink <laughs> tobacco. This is this is not the Horatian Virgilian farmer that he keeps extolling. He's a commodity producer on the backs of enslaved labor, pretending to be a mild-mannered family farmer, Lindsay. Uh, yes, that would be correct. I mean, my response was going to be, how are those products supposed to get to Europe? Um, they can't fly, and they can't you know, just evaporate, which is a skill that I would really like scientists to work on because I would very much like to be able to evaporate. But neither Jefferson nor our current scientists have yet quite mastered that skill. So, you know, it is it is very idealistic, as you said. And and this was one of the areas where Jay and Jefferson really differed. And I, you know, earlier you were saying that Jefferson often felt that Jay only represented New England interests. And what I think is so interesting about John Jay is he really didn't live in upstate New York. He primarily lived near New York City, much like Hamilton. And Hamilton, you really see more of the New York City culture, kind of the mid-Atlantic trade industry. John Jay almost feels more like a Puritan than any of the Puritans. He feels more like a Puritan than John Adams. He is more intensely religious. He is more upright in his personal code, although John Adams was perfectly upright, but even more intense in that way. He cared more about New England than anywhere else. And so it's almost easier to think of him as a product of somewhere else because it helps explain his focus, his intent, his personal code of honor, and his religious fervor. And my point in all of this is simply that Jefferson was a masterful, persuasive, poetic artist who writes these letters, they must have made people like Jay and Hamilton <laughs> shake their heads, you know, because Jefferson is extolling this 
image of the the yeoman farmer that he's really pulled out of classical literature and his capacity to make that one of the central myths of American life continues to this day. Amazing what Jefferson did. Oh, no, I completely agree. Sometimes, you know, when people will say, you know, did Jefferson or Hamilton win? And what I usually say is, well, Hamilton's vision of the economy won, but Jefferson's vision of who was the ideal American won. We and our national of, identity, that we were the good guys in the world. We use power very reluctantly. We have no imperial yeah. designs. We have a Jefferson mythos. I mean, how many articles have there been in the New York Times interviewing a random white guy in the middle of the Midwest in a diner about their views as though they are somehow the views of all Americans? Not to say that his views aren't important and don't count. He's a citizen. They count just like every other citizen. But you don't see those same newspaper articles interviewing people who live in an apartment, in a city, in a place like New York or Los Angeles, because that is not considered the average American. And you made David choke. We are two, we are two privileged white guys in cafes in the middle of America. The kind of people you're. We denouncing. think like everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next point before How we lose. How dare you? Yeah, let's move on to the next point before we lose uh, lose focus here. Uh, and that is that John Jay was president of the Continental Congress during the Revolutionary War. Another one of the many oh. positions he held, and he did it. He did his usual good job, but nothing memorable. I mean, no one thinks, no one puts him in the league of George Washington or John Hancock or Patrick Henry. Yeah, but not an easy job. In everything he did, he showed enormous competence. Well, I think what's really interesting about his time in the Continental Congress is, so he was appointed to the New York delegation in 1774. So he shows up when Washington shows up, he shows up when John Adams shows up, they're all meeting for the first time. As an aside, I'd really love to be a fly on that room because that would have just been bananas. But um, so he is there from the beginning. He serves for many years. A lot of the delegates sort of leave because it's not particularly a fun job, but he stays for a very long time. He becomes president of the Congress. As you said, nothing all that extraordinary but with extreme competence. And that cannot be a guarantee for all congressmen at that period. And he only leaves that position when he is appointed to go take on these diplomatic missions. So he is another one of these figures whose entire adult life is devoted to public service. And that is commendable. He's a servant leader. You know, the fact yeah. that he's a Christian servant leader and a very, 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 very serious Christian servant leader differentiates him from a lot of the deists who are floating around in this era. Washington is essentially a deist. Jefferson is certainly a deist. Franklin in most moods. Even John Adams uh, talks like a Unitarian and a deist um, through much of his life. But here's a Christian, John Jay, who's not afraid of this. He's the president of the American Bible Society. Uh, he says, if you look up his quotations in any quotation dictionary or website, about half of them are about the need for us to have a Christian consciousness as we pursue the American project. His religion also informed so many of the other things that we've talked about. It informed his, I think, his sort of distrust of the French. He had a deep suspicion of Catholics. It informed his approach to abolition. He believed Christianity and morality that was informed by Christianity was inconsistent with holding enslaved people. 
It informed his commitment to public service. So it shaped so much of who he was, both in terms of a politician, but also in terms as a human. And he knew that we are fallen. You know, as a Christian, he believed that humanity is fallen and that therefore we be, should be very careful about putting too much power in the hands of any entity or individual. And he says this, the Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. You know, most of the founding fathers did not talk like that, uh, but he did. What about his, his family life? Um, is there anything we should discuss there? Well, what's interesting about Jay is although he um, was one of the inheritors of the Jay estate, he came from a very wealthy, very privileged family. He was not the oldest son. And in fact, I believe if I remember correctly, he was the second to the youngest child. But the reason he took on such a role of importance is because so many of his siblings were born with disabilities. Several were blind or deaf and were unable to support themselves. And so he and his other brother, they were really responsible for taking care of the rest of this family and taking care of the parents as they aged, which was not unusual, but he had to take on a great deal of responsibility. As I mentioned, he married, uh, his wife's name was Sarah Livingston from the very powerful and wealthy Livingston family. He was close friends with many of the Livingstons as well as married into them. They had a wonderfully loving and warm marriage, so much so that, and this, you know, differs a bit from some of the people we've talked about before, she refused to stay home when he did his diplomatic missions. She went with him. So she went with him to Spain. She went with him to the Netherlands. She went with him to France. She went with him to England because they did not like to be apart. And lastly, he had generations of children that served in New York politics, served in national politics served abroad as diplomats themselves. So a really long legacy of Jay service that he imparted to future generations. And here's a contrast. Six children, five lived to be adults. Jefferson, six children, four died in childhood, and a fifth died when Jefferson was serving his first term as president. Jefferson said to Maria Cosway, I was born to lose everything I love. Um, Andrew Burstein has a really interesting book about Jefferson calling him a grieving optimist. John Jay and Sarah um, had a much more um, successful uh, life raising children, and they are clearly a kind of family that we can understand, whereas I cannot understand Jefferson's family life. Uh, it's just so deeply patriarchal and and sort of incapable of intimacy, I think I would say, of Jefferson, whereas you can sort of recognize the Jays as if you met them in an airport. They were deeply patriarchal because he certainly, you know, called the shots on a lot of things, but Sarah was a, was a partner in her own way, and the love for their children feels very, feels much more modern than oftentimes the letters that we read between Jefferson and his daughters. For the two of you, I've saved this juicy one for last, if I might present it to you, and that's that John Jay refused to cooperate with Hamilton in changing New York election rules after it became clear that Thomas Jefferson would be elected president. So quickly, the election system then was much more chaotic than ours, if you can imagine that. Every state had a different system, even different times of the year when they did all this. And so Aaron Burr, 
was a masterful political strategist, and he outdistanced and outworked Hamilton and made Jefferson the winner of the electoral votes in the state of New York. This was in May of 1800, so well before the kind of elections we have in November. And when Hamilton realized that Burr had outgeneraled him um, and that he had won the state for uh, Jefferson, Hamilton was, of course, appalled by that. And so he wrote a letter to the governor, who happened to be John Jay, suggesting that maybe they should pass a law changing how the electors would be chosen in New York, and it would be po by popular vote instead. In other words, they would um, void the election results that they had, create a new protocol where the Hamiltonians were much more likely to win than Jefferson and Burr. And he said in his uh, letter to John Jay, um, in times like these in which we live, it will not do to be overscrupulous. It is easy to sacrifice the substantial interests of society by a strict adherence to ordinary rules. I mean, think of that. We shouldn't be overscrupulous and we should not just ad adhere to ordinary rules. He called Jefferson, quote, an atheist in religion and a fanatic in politics. So even his most recent uh, biographer, uh, Ron Chernow, says this is one of the most discreditable moments of maybe the most discreditable single moment of Hamilton's life, and there are other nominees. But John Jay, bless him, received this letter, and he did not reply, but he did not acquiesce. And on the back of the letter for his files, he wrote, Quote, proposing a measure for party purposes which it would not become me to adopt. Fascinating, isn't it, Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, this exchange, it really embodies so much of the two personalities. Hamilton was so brilliant and also just sometimes so unhinged. Um, and Jay was so principled and so upright in so many of his decisions. And what's amazing about that election and I know I will be talking about this much more in the coming years, is how dedicated so many of the figures were to instilling a sense of the importance of sanctity of elections, instilling a sense of the importance of peaceful transfers to power, and recognizing that those traditions had to be cultivated, that they weren't a guarantee, they could not be taken for granted, and they had to be cherished. Adams cherished them, Jefferson cherished them. Jay cherished them. This occurred in the summer of 1800. Uh, the person that Hamilton blamed for this was not Jefferson, although he despised Jefferson. The person he blamed was Burr. And Lindsay, you can see Weehawken, July 1804, beginning to build some momentum right here. Yes. No, I mean, absolutely. What And what's, I think, so important about this, this Burr moment is it wasn't necessarily that Burr one that Hamilton opposed, it was that Burr went outside of the traditional bounds of political propriety. He campaigned at a time when people were not supposed to campaign. And that's what made Hamilton so mad is that Hamilton could have campaigned too, but he didn't because he was trying to stick to these political norms. And so that's where their their difference in approach starts to develop into real animosity. And as you said, leads to their eventual um, their eventual duel with many off-ramps that they could have taken, but elected not. This is such a paradox, isn't it? Because Hamilton wants to behave according to the norms of how a gentleman does not campaign, and yet he wants to have a coup d'etat in New York State <laughs> to deny Jefferson his victory. 
And so it's this is one of the many, many paradoxes of this era, isn't it? And one of the many paradoxes of Hamilton, of which there are many. Well, at, at this point, I, I was going to offer each of you a chance to give a quick summary on John Jay, but I'm going to take that time back, if I might, um, because I, I, I think it's significant. We should congratulate Clay on this blockbuster performance of the latest Ken Burns documentary on Benjamin Franklin. In fact, I was so impressed, I actually called you and Miracle of Miracles, you answered the wow. night that that aired. Um, you were just terrific, and I, I congratulate you and encourage anyone who hasn't seen that documentary uh, to watch it. It's, it's fascinating. It was great. Did you see it, Lindsay? I did see it. I enjoyed it very much. Clay, we talked a lot of when we did our Ben Franklin episode about that experience. Were you happy with how it turned out? Well, yes, of course. I mean, what a thrill to be in the Ken Burns film, and um, I got plenty of time, although... When I think of what's on the cutting room floor, of course, I lament, as I'm sure you do, that we, we always want to be the like the, that person. Uh, but Well, I thought you were pretty darn close, especially in episode two. But I didn't say a single stupid thing. You know, that's all I care about. I didn't say a single stupid thing. Now, that's the place to end the broadcast today. So I want to thank the both of you. It's been fascinating. Um, I've learned a lot about John Jay, and I'm happy that I have. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. This was fun. We'll see you again soon, I hope, Lindsay. Yes, we have many 10 things to discuss. Many more in the works, so we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>